It's New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Richard Briette. Briette, I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Vamik Volkan. Dr. Volkan is Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, the Senior Eric Erickson Scholar at the Erickson Institute. It's New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Richard Briette. I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Vamik Volkan. Dr. Volkan is Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, the Senior Eric Erickson Scholar at the Erickson Institute at the, of the Austin Riggs Center, um, <clears throat> Emeritus Training and Supervising Analyst at the Washington, D.C. Psychoanalytic Institute. Dr. Volkan was born on the island of Cyprus to Cypriot Turkish parents. I should warn um, New Books listeners, I'm reading a long bio here of Dr. Volkan. Um, I thought it would be important to really share the list of his accomplishments because I see it as part of the interview. Um, in 1987, Dr. Volkan established the Center for the Study of Mind and Human Interaction at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Um, that center applied a growing theoretical and field-proven base of knowledge to issues such as ethnic tension, racism, large group identity, terrorism, societal trauma, mourning, transgenerational transmissions, leader-follower relationships, and other aspects of national and international conflict. He was a member of the International Negotiation Network under the directorship of the former President Jimmy Carter from 1989 to 2000 and also a member of the Working Group on Terror and Terrorism of the International Psychoanalytic Association. Dr. Vulcan had the honor to give the keynote address in Cape Town, South Africa, in 2006, celebrating Archbishop Desmond Tutu's life of peaceful justice and the 10th anniversary of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's activities. He also felt honored to have been nominated three times for the Nobel, Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, including the 2017 nomination. At the present time, Dr. Volkan is also president of the International Dialogue in Initiative, a nonprofit organization that brings together unofficial representatives from various parts of the world, such as Germany, Iran, Israel, Russia, Turkey, the UK, the USA, and the West Bank, to examine world affairs from a psychopolitical angle. The IDI develops a common language between psychoanalysts and those who are diplomats, politicians, or from other disciplines. Also, in a very exciting bit of news, um, Dr. Volkan received the Sigourney Award for 2015, and we might, we're going to talk about that a little later. Dr. Volkan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Um, can you, so what we're going to be talking about today, I suppose I should mention the book. The book is called A Nazi Legacy, Depositing Transgenerational Transmission, Dissociation, and Remembering Through Action, and that's 2015 Karnak. Dr. Volkan, um, could you tell us about the book and, and how you came to write it? Well, um, you know, um, uh, I have been involved in German affairs, so to speak, uh, since the uh, reunification of Germany, because um, I was interested to know how the reunification would increase prejudice against the guest workers and foreigners. And this was happening because East Germans perceived West Germans as the uh, descendants of the uh, Nazis and vice versa. And when they got together, they had to project this kind of feeling to somebody else. And because of that, I've been uh, supervising a lot of uh, psychoanalysts in Germany, and I noted that Sometimes they were having difficulty discussing the Holocaust-related issues with their patients. And then uh, this patient came along. Uh, this is the grandson of a very famous Nazi. We are not going to mention his name. And we were able to see how transgenerational transmissions also occur among people who are not the victims, but perpetrators. And this has been a very difficult area for them to talk about it or write about it. And so I decided to write this book. 
Um, and that's, you know, when I hear the words transgenerational transmission, I automatically in my mind follow that with the word trauma. Um, and I think we're going to get into, I, I definitely want to get into how transgenerational transmission, say, for, from descendants of survivors versus perpetrators. Um, I want to ask you about that. And I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that um, aspect. Um, but I want to, before, to kind of um, set some context for this, um, I wanted to ask you about your own formative uh, experiences that got you interested or motivated you to do the work about prejudice and ethnic uh, tension and violence. Um, can you talk about your background um, from Cyprus? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm from the island of Cyprus, and when I was growing up, uh, the island uh, was a British colony. And I don't know if you know this island; it's a beautiful place, and there are uh, Turks and Greeks, and including uh, smaller minorities, Armenians, even Phoenicians, <laughs> mm. historical Phoenicians. They have two or three villages in Cyprus, and. Um, uh, you know, as the world changed, um, the British uh, left the island and the island became independent. But since they had uh, different ethnic groups there, blood um, started running. It was horrible. So I came to this country in 1957. And three months later, my roommate in Ankara, I was attending the medical school in Ankara, Turkey, and I had a roommate, he was like my brother. He went back to Cyprus to visit his ailing mother, and a Greek terrorist uh, shot him while he was buying medicine for his mother in a pharmacy. And you can imagine, uh, I was in a new country in Chicago, I did not know anybody else, and I got this news, and I couldn't warn, because I didn't know anybody who would I talk to about these things. So when I became a psychiatrist, I suddenly realized, I and mean, I didn't realize for a long time, I began writing books on mourning, and when I had opportunity to, to get in, involved in world affairs, I began to work on bringing people to a table to make peace, <laughs> And they all had to do with with my background, of course. You know, there's a, a, a when you you talk about this story in um, the book, a Nazi legacy, yeah. um, and the there was a the, the, a very poignant de- detail for me as I read it. You you mentioned that your medical school friend, who f- you felt like was your brother, you mentioned that he was shot seven times, and I just found yes. it very poignant that you remembered the number of times, and you, you yes, pointed I that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you say that at the time you got the news, you didn't have anyone to talk about, to yes. talk to about it, um, but I, I think what you say in the book, and the, the irony here, is that you were in analysis at the time, No. No, 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 no. This was this happened in 1957. I did not begin my analysis until I finished my internship at residency and came to university. Okay. Yeah, so uh, at least after uh, for five years, I went into analysis. Got it. Yeah. Um, however, you do point out in the book that um, it's not something that you talked about in the analysis. That's correct, because it goes back all the way to Freud. Right. Um, <laughs> in 2006, I was, um, I was Freud professor in, uh, in uh, Austria, and my office was at Freud's home, uh, 19 Bergasse Strasse. Mm. And I spent uh, four months in Freud's house, so to speak, and I didn't have much to do, so I kept thinking about um, who was this guy? What was he doing here? You know, I was touching the, you know, walls and so on that he had touched. And um, I figured out that um, 
he knew when he left Vienna, he would be, you know, his sister and neighbor would be killed and so on. And he was a discoverer. He discovered internal world. And this is why he did not want to touch external things. You know, remember there's a dialogue between him and Albert Einstein. Right. Albert Einstein asked him, you know, what can we do about war, about world affairs? And he said, oh, no, no, let's don't touch it. So uh, this tradition stayed with classical psychoanalysis, especially ego psychoanalysis in, in, in the United States. And my analyst was wonderful, but uh, he was a classical analyst. So external events never would come to to, to the office, so to speak. not talk about it. Everybody right. was interested in internal issues. And that's why I think that uh, my uh, analyst and I, we did not discuss much what was happening in Cyprus and my feelings about uh, this or that. Um, I don't know that uh, this question occurred to me, but I, I, it made me wonder, were you the analyst in that position? Would you have talked about it? Now, now, not only I, but many people mm-hmm. are um, talking about it. Mm-hmm. There's another reason for this, because most of the famous analysts uh, were related to Holocaust, a lot of Jewish origin famous analysts. And my hunch is that they did not also want to open up this painful topic. There are some papers about this. Right. I know some uh, friends, very good friends, uh, who were, uh, you know, uh, descendants, or they escaped from the Holocaust. They did not talk about it until they were in their seventies. Right. Things are changing now, especially after September 11. Other yeah. psychological branches are paying attention to external world, and this forced psychoanalysts also to pay attention to it. I would say that, if anything, you're adv- you're advocating for people to pay attention. For psychoanalysts, uh, yes, because uh, it is uh, there is always an intertwining of external world and internal world, and if we do not take that into consideration, I don't think that we can do full analysis of certain people, right? Because there are certain people uh, in their life, external traumas are so important. They they. Uh, they change their internal world. So we need to understand how this intertwining takes place. All right. Well, that certainly um, is a segue to talk about the case. Um, yes. Before we get the and the, the um, patient's uh, name in the case, um, the um, name that you give him is Victor. Um, yes. Before we get to him, um, I want to ask you to give us a brief um definition of transgenerational transmission um, so that we're all sort of on the same page about it? Okay. Um, You know, interestingly enough, after I got involved in international relations, I knew the importance of transgenerational transmission not from the patients, but from diplomats and others who were discussing with enemy representatives. For example, when you brought uh, Russians after the Soviet Union collapsed, when we brought Russian big shots from Duma, second guy in Duma, etc., etc., and a bunch of Estonian parliamentarians and so on and so on. Uh, during discussions, if the Russians felt humiliated, <laughs> they would start talking about the Mongol invasion of Russia centuries ago. <laughs> right. And suddenly I realized that when massive traumas occur, the images of these traumas go through generation to generation. And this issue then becomes very interesting. There's a change of function instead of remembering actual trauma, because after so many years or centuries, you don't, you're not part of the trauma. What you remember is that this trauma only occurred to your group, 
and therefore it is a marker for your group. Right. If you're Russian, you are the only one who had the uh, Mongol invasion. If you are Serbian, you only only group on Earth who had the Battle of Kosovo, for example. And this observation made me to start paying attention to individuals on the couch. And I suddenly, I had a patient uh, whose family goes back to Robert Lee, <laughs> so to speak. And I could see a uh, relationship uh, of that time going from generation to generation and giving him direction to develop this or that kind of uh, structure, internal structure. The, this book that we are talking about is fantastic in exploring this concept. The grandfather was a key person in the evolution of euthanasia program in Nazi Germany. You know, putting kids, uh, disabled kids, and later on others in a bus and gathering them. Can you imagine? Yeah, and that I I wasn't familiar with it actually until you write about it in the book. Um, well, before the final solution for Jewish people, the most murdering took place in this program. This program started before they began killing Jewish people directly. So, so this was um, a program the Nazis started um, that was nicknamed T Four. Before, um, because uh, I forgot the, the street, street. Name. yeah, street name, and um, you know Hitler started it, and uh, thousands and thousands of people died, and then it became you know the method to kill also Jewish people and others. It was a it was a, a state run euthanasia program where the yes. state decides that people with disabilities, mental and physical, yes. should be eliminated, and even yes. even without the knowledge of their families. Um, yes. Just and, breathtaking and began, when I was reading it. picking up people and calling them, you know, and then killing them in that fashion. And they, they were injecting, um, you know, poison, and that was expensive. So they came up, uh, this grandfather and some other people, I'm not going to name his name because we don't want to right. hurt the patient. But they came up with the idea of killing people in buses. So coming back to transgenerational transmission. Now you mentioned the I, sorry to interrupt. You mentioned the idea of cho you and you you use a term for this in your book, chosen yeah. trauma and an, yeah. an entitlement ideology. And I think that's what you're yeah. saying with um you know, when someone's pride is hurt, they, they go back in time to a prior traumatic event which becomes a chosen trauma, is that right? Yes. Well, I mean, chosen traumas I'm talking about more societal yep. way of remembering. Okay. But, uh, this trauma only occurred to us. And when time comes, new leaders come and they re, re inflame, uh traumas from 600 years ago. The best example, again, comes from Milosevic. Milosevic, when he came to power, inflamed uh, Serbian chosen trauma called the Battle of Kosovo, which had taken place in, my God, uh, oh, the 1200s? You know, 600 years ago. Yeah. And uh, they built their monuments, uh, they dug out the body of the Serbian leader during this uh, battle. My God, whatever was left. Few, few bones, I don't know what was left. They put in a coffin, they went from village to village. Every night they buried the bones, they reincarnated them. They induced all kinds of emotions and people say, okay, we are Serbians, we are victims, therefore we are entitled to do this or that. I don't mean only Serbians do this, by the way. I, I don't want to right. talk against Serbians. Everybody in the whole world are the same, by the way, for me, because I have been to so many countries. We have, we have all, we are all human. Well, your your description of the what they're doing with the body, it, it yes. certainly calls to mind Freud and um, Moses and monotheism and yes. the period he was writing that during the rise of the Nazis. Yes. But in, in, in individual case, like this uh, German guy comes to analysis, 
and he has a peculiar symptom. In the middle of the night, he wakes up, and he doesn't know. He's in a dissociated state. He goes and tries to break windows, and he screams, there's danger, let's get out of here. And he doesn't remember this himself. His girlfriends, because he's now grown up, he has girlfriends, the girlfriends say to him, hey, you woke up in the middle of the night and you tried to break windows, you wanted some air, you wanted this or that, and there's some danger. Only thing he remembers is that his heart was beating faster. Right. And uh, this, so of course, nobody, no girl wants to stay with him, so they leave him. But then he found a, a new girl whom uh, they were married later on, but uh, uh, he had done something for this girl's family financially, so the girl stayed with him, but he had to come to analysis to figure out why was this happening. Okay. The German analyst finds certain reasons, like any analyst would find from events from childhood. That is, he had two surgeries, and he was gassed, <laughs> okay? And um, so he might remember, um, you know, the trauma during surgeries, and he was gassed. But he had no idea that his grandfather was one of the important people of the Eastanasia program. Uh, this kind of the parents knew and they, what I call technically deposited image of grandfather in him because parents did not want to have such a person in their family. They wanted to get away from guilt feelings and they gave him a task to repeat grandfather's, you know, bad business, but reverse it, break the windows and bring oxygen into the bus. Right. So that nobody would die. And here we see, without knowing the history, we could not, the German analyst lady could not analyze this man. So just to be clear, uh, for some some context for the audience, um, this is a woman, um, I don't know if it's her real name, you call her Dr. Adeline? No, not, not her real name. Okay. No. Yeah, in the book you call her Dr. Adeline, and she contacts yes. you for supervision. Yes. for this case of this young man that comes to her for treatment, uh, complaining yes. about this bizarre night behavior. Yes. Um, and so just in case, you know, it, it, it was a, a, a subtle connection, but um, he recalls a terror of being gassed as a, as, yes. a, as a child for these yes. surgeries. I think one was at age three and then three and a half and then later in his adolescence. Yes, but he connected this also without knowing right. with his grandfather's actions. So here was intertwining of his personal stories with the uh, uh, with what was passed to him historically. Right. Yes. Um. So since we're we're getting into um, talking about the case, yes. Um, just again, um, for reference for the audience, um, what what you, what you do with your book, and you know the book is a hundred pages. It's actually ninety nine pages long, and yeah. it's incredible. I I have not taken more notes for an interview than I have on this book. Um, yeah. You have a couple of chapters on theory, um, and yeah. you know the chapter on your background and your thoughts about the need for psychoanalysts to be more aware of their own silence and the own, their own potential for enactment yes. with transgenerational transmission. But then those chapters are interspersed with the case study. It's, you yes. know, it on the outside, it looks like, you know, a case study, but it is so much more. Um, so we follow the whole uh, treatment at, at, from your position as you're supervising it, and I believe Dr. Adeline wa- requested that you write it up. Is that right? She, you know, uh, it took her three years mm-hmm. because uh, she told me later on. Of course, I could not write everything about her. Right. Uh, she also had a Nazi father. Right. 
which is a key piece of this story. And that, um, and also I learned much later that this patient had come to see her soon after her father had died. Mm. So both of them denied the fact that uh, the patient's behavior was very much connected with transgenerational transmission. Right. And it took them three years to realize this. Right. And then everything opened up. And her father, the the analyst's father, was in Hitler Youth and then later joined the army, uh, the Nazi army. Yes. Um, So there, you know. I cannot say much about him because, again, I want to protect the. Of course. Yes. So shall we talk about. Victor, and get more into detail on the case? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, I know that... I, I Well, let me ask one question about uh, sure. a little bit about theory. Sure. And we're talking about depositing. Yes. In other words, um, I know that Victor's parents um, were aware of, obviously aware of the grandfather's activities. He was in the... Uh, you know, he was a high-level official, um, and they had the, the the grandfather's letters, um, which they edited, I think, or they hid some of them, probably. And so they were very aware of very his activities, and the I, the idea is they sort of willfully repressed the knowledge of the grandfather's criminal, I guess we could say criminal, I don't know, perpetrator activities. But then the idea, the theory is that that repressed, um, let's say, I don't know, object is essentially deposited via the unconscious into the grandson, into Victor. Yes. Now, Uh, is that an example of transgenerational transmission via a perpetrator? And is that different from... No, I mean, okay. I think the best way to explain to the listener, yes, because psychoanalysts and other psychologists and psychiatrists knew about this depositing okay. a long time ago, but we did not pay attention to it. And that comes from so-called replacement children. Uh-huh. That right. is, a mother uh, has a child, the child dies, mother right. gets pregnant, has another child, and name the second child after the first child, that doesn't mean that anything bad is going to happen because of that. Right. But if the mother, mother has an image of the dead child, the right. child has no image, no experience with the dead child. But mother treats the second child as if the second child is a reincarnation of the first child. Right. In a sense, an image that belongs only to mother is given by mother to the child. In identification, in interaction with the other, the child is active taking things in and becoming like mother or imitating and taking in and identifying with father, teachers, and so on. In depositing, it's like identification, but the active person is the adult. Adult has certain things. Child has no idea about them. Adult pushes those things into the child's developing self-representation. Right. Okay? And this is what happened also with this case. If you look at the story, you know, when they had children, they were very, very afraid that one of them would be, uh, you know, uh, handicapped. The parents, the parents had two children. Yes. Victor's the oldest, and he has a younger yes. brother, Richard. Yes, and especially younger brother, Richard, they perceived him as a handicapped person, and then they said to Richard, you be the savior, and supposedly Richard one time in his childhood saved the family from fire, you know. So they created both the victim and the victimizer and the savior, and omnipotence, everything, and they locked up all these letters and so on. And so, can I? Um, do you mind if I quote uh, quote you? Yes, please. Okay, because um, you make this point um, about how the depositing 
works. Yeah. Um, and you say, if what is deposited into the child's developing self-representation is yeah. a grand image, yeah. it, it may function as an initiator for a future grandiose self. Yes. And I um, think for that... That itself also becomes, you know, it can be normal or it can be exaggerated. Okay. Um, yeah. But we're also, um, I, I saw that as really explaining the um, narcissistic uh, personality uh, presentation that he came to treatment with. Oh, of course. In this case, obviously. Yes. Uh, and that was confusing. See, he knew it, but only symbolically. Right. Uh, he had a daydream, or he talked about carrying an egg uh, under his arm. <laughs> right. And this egg was filled with this filled with chaos, and he was afraid that this egg uh, would crack, and things would come out. Chaos would come out, and he had no idea what chaos was. And as you know, as analysis goes on, then he understands that it is the deposit image of uh, grandfather, but also not only that he's going to uh, do things and so that they will not feel guilty, how he would save people from being gassed, but he also, as you suggested, took the grandiosity of his grandfather. Right. Again, there are certain things that we I could not write in the book because it needed to protect his image. Um, but it, it, part of it is written in the book. He ends up uh, finding grandfather's, uh, you know, where he lived, and he has he doesn't have money, but he spent all his money to buy that place and live there. I mean, he also had grandiosity, unbelievable grandiosity. And the chaos was, same time, he wanted to be a savior. Right. Yeah. And would I be wrong in saying that this is really a case study of, you know, working with a, a narcissistic character? Uh, yes. Well, narcissistic characters, they have uh, different reasons mm -hmm. for becoming uh, narcissists. Mm -hmm. Um one of the uh, reasons I, I have this, another book that describes the different family backgrounds of narcissistic people. In this case, you were quite right. The narcissism was what was deposited in him. Right. He was going to be number one uh, big shot, but at the same time, number one savior of uh, family name and also reversing guilt feelings and so on. Um, you know, the um, the egg image that you mentioned, yeah. um, it was described in the book as a kind of daydream that he had, but yeah. after you mentioned something that, that I thought was, you know, if, if you've worked with, um, you know, um, a narcissistic patient, this is particularly uh, sort of poignant, but also, funny um after a year of treatment he victor added an image to this daydream of walking with the egg um and you write a small bird landed on his shoulder and this made him <laughs> feel nice <laughs> apparently the patient had no curiosity about the little bird yeah. um but you know dr adeline goes on to you know ponder or consider that the little bird is repre represents her the analyst uh, well, also, you know, again, we could not write it very carefully, you know, because, again, to protect the, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak, the, uh, the doctor's real name has something to do with that kind of thing. Aha. Uh -huh. so, okay. But, Got it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, if, if, if I may, I think that one of the sort of successful avenues that the treatment took was linking, essentially linking uh, Victor's dissociated self with the grandiose self. Yeah. And um, uh, that was one of the particularly fascinating uh, aspects of the case. And 
you know, again, for the audience, I would say that the, the, the book has, you know, it's rich with um, very broad theoretical questions, but then it also gets down into the sort of granular um, technique um, questions of the case, which are just fascinating. Um, and so that I think is part of what Dr. Adeline and you are able to do is start to draw these bridges and links for Victor. Um, and that's really one of the really impressive aspects of watching this treatment unfold. Yes. And also, in one of the areas that um, I discuss in the book, also the um, concept of action in psychoanalysis. And again, in classical psychoanalysis, if you remember something in action, that was called acting out. Right. And you would, you would not uh, pay attention to it, or you would want you would not want patient to do it. You wanted patient to bring everything in words and discuss it in in the room, etc. And there were people who noticed that some people cannot really get well until they repeat the story, including the transference aspect of it, in certain actions in order to be sure that they can end the story in a different way, in actual life. And we noticed that uh, in my other work and so on, that uh, in such actions, I call them therapeutic play. Right. And that... Uh, now, do you, mean, do you mean play as in playing in reality or play as in yeah, Hamlet. Yeah, I mean, I use, because I, I, you, you have to look at the whole psychological process as a play, a serious play. Okay, because when you mentioned um, acting out, it, it, it naturally made me, um, one of the uh, members of IPTAR, my institute, Gil Katz, has a book called The Play Within the Play, which is about enactment. And yes. I certainly thought a lot about that book while going yes. over this book. So yes. I get it, therapeutic play. Okay. Yes, yes. For example, uh, uh, this man uh, invests his money to raise certain type of trees in order to increase oxygen. <laughs> For the world. For the world. You see, that is, he has to go and actually does it. And he knows what he's doing, but without doing it, he cannot say, I am able to change what was in me previously. You have right. to do in action. Um, there are many actions in the book that I, I refer how he gets involved in those things. You know, he goes to a part of town where butchers are. Right. You know, butchering people, animals. I mean, they are, uh, you know, Nazis and so on. Right. He notices the changes in this environment. He gets involved in this or that. This is how he changes. And this is also one theoretical aspect that this book very clearly illustrates. How if the analyst notices an action as a therapeutic play, we should not interfere with it. Mm -hmm. We should go along with it. Um, all right. So um, that that I I, I don't want to um, brush over the initial. We're, we're the point we're talking right now is later in the treatment. I think he's able to start making these links and he's able yeah. to engage in this yeah. kind of play. But to give credit to you and Dr. Adeline, there are some tough years of Wait. work. Well, some of the tough years also, I mean, I hint at the book that Dr. Adeline uh, herself was, did not want to hear certain things. Okay. And, and so, but she developed, I think, a certain kind of transference, long-distance transference uh, with me, because she's in Germany, I'm in America. Mm -hmm. And that when time came, she would call me and uh, kind of needed some encouragement to move on. 
Right. So this whole analysis, in fact, took, what, seven, seven and a half years. Uh, During which time she also, um, the, the treatment went down to once a week for a period of years. Yes. Yes, that was uh, making it. That, that's uh, um, yeah, that was a, a counter counter uh, problem for her. Mm-hmm. And um, but she was very stubborn. Doctor Adeline was very stubborn, and she was also in in her in her actual life uh, very wanted to get rid of her own guilt feelings connected with the Holocaust and the family and so on. Very much so, very liberal person. And I think <laughs> I think she also got a great deal for herself by analyzing this person. Good. Um, but you, she, there's a point where you kind of have to shake things up or, or, or move yes. things along. And yes. I believe... Yes. Without further further ado, this gets us to the plate of enchiladas. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Well, uh, oh my God, this is uh, when I was uh, in training. I learned that from my own. You were at Austin Riggs, I believe. No, I was not at Austin Riggs. Okay. I, I went to Austin Riggs uh, after I retired. Okay. Yeah. Old age. Uh, when I was I was trained in Washington D.C. My psychologist training was in Washington D.C. I had good supervisors: um, Bill Granatier, um, Harold Searle was my ideal guide wow. a few few days ago. Mm, right. Uh, Bryce Boyer, mm-hmm. you know Bryce Boyer um, was in California, but he was kind of my mentor in those days. You know, whole psychology world was governed, so to speak, from New York. And there were a bunch of the analysts who were looking at uh, external world issues and treating psychotic people and so on. And they were kind of pushed away. And somehow I got involved with them and learned a great deal from them. Right. How to treat uh, people who are not just simply neurotic. Right. And... The idea was that when when some kind of stigmate occurs, not only because because of the uh, resistances etc. on the part of the patient, but also counter responses on the part of the analyst. Right. And and it just goes on like slowly repeating everything, but going nowhere. And. We learn even to say to the patient in analysis, hey, sit in front of me today, just for one day. I want to talk to you. <laughs> and you kind of make a summary of analytic process and where you are. This is what we've learned, etc. Learn, and this is what, where we are, and this is our particular issue right now, and let's start all over again just right. from the point on. And... Um, you, I, I came up with the word enchilada, and I think I don't know if I wrote in the book. You I did. Osterix and teaching because Osterix has patients, uh, very very difficult patients. They go. Uh, some people trying to commit suicide ten times. Mm-hmm. Some people see uh, fifteen therapists before they come to Osterix, and they are not typical neurotic people. So um, uh, they are being treated there by uh, experienced uh, therapists, also by fellows under supervision. And in that situation, because they are staying at Austin Riggs for three months or eight months or something like that, to make enchiladas, I found, was very useful, not only for the patient, but also for the young young fellow. Mm-hmm. And... When I was supervising Dr. Adeline, I was not supervising her regularly every week, so to speak. Uh, there were situations in that her making, her giving an enchilada to herself and to the patient was extremely useful. <laughs> Wait, did we explain where enchilada came from in the restaurant? 
Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we we better mention that. Yeah, and uh, if you allow me, you were you were with some um, some residents, I think, having lunch at a Mexican hello, restaurant at, at Austin Riggs. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. and you were talking about this concept of yes. presenting the work, and one of the one of the one of your um, colleagues said it's kind of like a plate of enchiladas with a lot of different yeah, options for ingredients. Food. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so the idea, you know, which is both funny, but also it struck me as incredibly um, practical, is um, you, you're essentially saying, okay, listen, this is what's going on. Yes. Here are the options. You're kind of shaking yes. up the uh, treatment yes. and inviting the patient to kind of join you in, in what? Making a decision about proceeding? Well, you kind of make a, you know, you are you are on the road and uh, you took a different road and you got stuck there, and you making enchilada. The analyst doesn't say just one word or one sentence or right. one sentence. The analyst does explain the process it went through and where you are. So, in a sense, you kind of make a new beginning with the patient. You agreement right. that you're going to work on this. Uh, where you are, right? Patient comes in and he or she is at one point, but after three years or so, and something you, you are stuck in something, you are in different point. So that point has to be explained, right? So it's the enchilada technique. Um, Dr. Volkan, we have a few minutes left. Um, sure. I, I, you know, I of course would have liked to talk about Victor in more detail, but I think we covered a lot of the major points. Um, But there was one aspect of talking about silence, the silence of the analyst or the question about enactment. Mm -hmm. And there was a point when Victor started to make real lively connections between him, his grandiose and his dissociated self where he sees a movie um, and I'm guessing from the timing of the story that it was probably 12 years a slave. It was a movie. Uh, it was a movie about slavery yes, in the United yes, States. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, yes. um, and I, I, I wrote down the bit because it was so, uh, yes, yes. chilling to me that he says he recalled the film dealing with racism and thought he might be like the white people in the United States. Yes. And, you know, that gets to a a question I have about where we are as analysts and what's happening in the world today, particularly, you know, in the United States right now. There's a lot of um, I think racism is becoming much uh, more um, um, seen in in the public sphere and people are it's it's becoming more obvious and and more difficult to avert our eyes um and it i can't help but be moved by this patient talking about becoming aware of his nazi legacy and comparing himself to white people in the united states and this idea that that talk about transgenerational transmission and slavery um and the history of slavery in the united states Can you can you speak to this and 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 discuss the so, role that so, you see uh, for psychoanalysts? Well, yes, I think the right now the world is changing so fast. Yeah, uh, uh, globalization, fast travel, especially communication technology, yeah, change everything, and now terrorism came into it, and we are in a confusion. The whole world, not only in America, but mm-hmm. everywhere I go, I see the confusion. Everybody's saying, who are we now? Right. That is, uh, I call it the, who are we now civilization. Hmm. I have no idea how it's going to settle. I'm not going to be able to say I'll be dead for a long time hmm. by the time it settles. And this brings up uh, holding on our own kind, our own uh, identity. And most of the time we go back. Very seldom after revolutions you are lucky and you have uh, some leader that goes forward and brings things new and makes a different, wonderful world. Most of the time, like after Arab Spring, people go back. I see. 
you say, who are we now? You go back 100 years ago. Now ISIS is gone how many years ago, for God's sake. And this kind of thing also happened in America. We go back. When we say, who are we now? When we get scared, like what's happening today or yesterday, what happened in Paris, is it, it, uh, spreading all over. And people saying, who are we now? And this brings up uh, a lot of feelings about we are we and you are the other. <laughs> right. And that includes uh, societal xenophobia, societal prejudice. Right. Um, all right. Well, um, I just want to ask you really quickly, what uh, what's next for you? Are you do you have another book coming out? Or what are you working on? Well, I, I write books, you know, I'm you put, writing my 52nd book right now. You're cranking books out. Yes, that's true. Uh, well, um, I, I, I wrote this book, uh, Nuts and Legacy, as a, it's one of the series of books I wrote about psychoanalysis from beginning to the end. Mm. Because with pluralism in psychoanalysis, we need to say what we really do. And the only way that you can tell me what you do in your office, tell me a case from beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. And this is also important for new generation of psychoanalysts to read to see what happened. Uh, and so I wrote, I don't know how many, five, six books, uh, and I wrote extra ones, not in English because, again, I wanted to protect the identity of patients. I wrote two in Finnish, and I wrote about, I don't know, six in Turkish, mm. cases beginning to the end. And now, uh, all this who are we now thing is happening. My new book that I'm working on, I'm working with a Finnish historian uh, writing about uh, world affairs, okay. terrorism, and so on. And now also I'm writing something about the uh, immigration. Okay, well... Um... <laughs> I'm sure it's it'll be none uh, too soon that we um, look forward to those books arriving for us to read. Um, it's been a real honor having you on the program, um, Dr. Vomik Volkan. The book is a Nazi legacy: depositing transgenerational transmission, dissociation, and remembering through action. Dr. Volkan, thank you so much. Thank you for calling. Me.